Good morning. Nine, eight, seven, this is roll six, twenty nine. Twenty nine. Don't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like we're like we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really. Is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've got so many songs, but I've got like my quota of tunes for the next ten years or albums. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> the winter of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back project. In the coming weeks, I'll be providing an in-depth commentary on the available audio material captured on two Nagra tape recorders in January 1969. Day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, I'll attempt to bring clarity and context to the Beatles' discussions and those of their supporting players. In addition, I'll devote specific episodes to the people and events that are essential to understanding what really happened all those years ago. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 2 If you haven't listened to episode one, please pause here and play that first. It's a detailed timeline of the events in the last months of 1968. If I could summarize the last months of 1968, I'd say that while it's only a matter of weeks since the Beatles released their White Album, it's two and a half months since their last session. Two and a half months in Beatle years is a long, long time. The Magical Mystery Tour film was only a year before these sessions. In terms of their artistic development, particularly for John and George, a huge gulf has opened up between their individual work and that of the Beatles. For John, the traumatic series of events that started almost immediately after the final White Album session have served to strengthen the emotional bonds he feels towards his partner Yoko. In the final months of 1968, it saw them working on developing their brand outside the group. For George, his work in LA as a producer, his session work with Cream and Dylan, his supervising the production of the White Album Master, and even the crowd reaction to his TV appearance with the Smothers Brothers, have given him an understanding of the respect that the public and fellow musicians have for him. George starts 1969 in high spirits, but it wasn't to last. For Paul, like George, The time away has been about developing Apple artists, but it's also been about forming his own emotional bonds. The pictures Linda Eastman takes of Paul exploring Pride de Luce with her daughter Heather show him enjoying being part of his new ready-made family. It physically changes him. Not just his thick black sailor's beard and his less flamboyant style of dress, but also a slight weight gain 
brought on by nights in, home-cooked meals, family life, and more than likely copious amounts of pot. As for Ringo, he was happy to sit at home and wait for the phone to ring. What motivates the Beatles to begin another project so quickly? Lost momentum, perhaps. John and Paul, enthusiastic after the Hey Jude Revolution video shoot, wanted to play some live shows to promote their double album. But John's arrest and Yoko's subsequent miscarriage, not to mention the controversy of their Two Virgins album cover, put paid to any immediate plans they had. Perhaps the motivation was financial. Despite a new album high in the charts at number one, it was common knowledge in the press that the Beatles' business venture, Apple Core, was already in financial difficulty. John and Ringo were asked about it in interviews at the time. Perhaps it's because, despite the five months' work, Paul is still unsatisfied with the quality of the White Album and thinks they can do better. He'll go on to say so while promoting Abbey Road. In terms of creativity, Paul will bring by far the largest number of new songs to the sessions. Only George will come close, but as we will see, he struggles to get by him from his bandmates. The deadline of February the 1st and Ringo's film project is a motivating factor. Perhaps the Beatles realise that if they're to do anything in the early part of this year, they have to do it now. Ultimately, it may simply be that Paul senses that the Beatles have drifted further apart than ever over the course of 1968, and that there is a risk of them never working together again. He still believes that they can get back the feeling of camaraderie, their us-against-the-world, all-for-one, one-for-all spirit that steered them through a period of being the most famous human beings on Earth, the most famous people they'd ever been, in fact. And so Paul delivers them a fait accompli, a studio space booked, a deadline to finish, never mind that his previous attempt at this with the announced live dates failed to galvanise the team. This time, everyone would be in attendance and a film crew would force them into being disciplined and showing the world how the magic happens. That said, it is curious that with all that at stake, with so many of the band's entourage, George Martin, Dennis O'Dell, the film crew, Glyn Johns, on standby, Paul chooses this day to arrive an hour and a half late. And so we find ourselves on the Twickenham soundstage where the Beatles had filmed their two movies, where they'd shot promotional clips in 1965 and invented the pop video, where they'd filmed themselves performing Hey Jude and Revolution a few months earlier. It was familiar territory for them, but not exactly comfortable. It was cold in the cavernous space until the bright lamps made it suddenly too hot. Acoustically, the echoey, empty space made it difficult for the Beatles to hear each other without microphones and a PA system. Road manager Kevin Harrington points out that it was also difficult to be creative when you're surrounded by 30 film crew looking bored and watching the clock. And although it's handy as a metaphor for the increasingly bleak atmosphere at these sessions, January 1969 wasn't a particularly cold month. In fact, it was the mildest January of the 1960s, averaging 5.5 degrees centigrade as it was then known, or 42 degrees Fahrenheit. It was dry this day, as it would be for most of the month. The Beatles had returned from a Christmas break after a busy 1968. The big news that Christmas was the orbit around the moon of Apollo 8, piloted by Jim Lovell, 
and the moment he captured an iconic photo of our planet Earth rising over the moon's surface. Today, however, the day after New Year, was a slow news day. The daily newspapers carried headlines bemoaning the loss to business caused by too many staff phoning in with hangovers. In other news, a man was cleared in court for a theft that had already cost him his job. And in what must be an unrelated story, the theft of 200 miles of super sausage skins made the headlines. The Vietnam War was still dominating the news, and today marked the beginning of Operation Barrier Reef by coalition forces in the Mekong Delta. In the pop charts, The Scaffold featuring Paul's brother Mike were at number one with Lily the Pink. They would be toppled later in the month by Marmalade with their version of Obla Dee Obla Da proving that in the UK at least, the Beatles' connection was a license to print money. At the movies, you could choose between Tommy Steele high-kicking in Finian's Rainbow, Jane Fonda struggling to stay dressed in Barbarella, and Tony Curtis playing against type in the Boston Strangler. Last night's TV was still offering up seasonal light entertainment, such as the Brian Ricks farce What an Exhibition. It featured Derek Royal, who had previously worked with the Beatles in the Magical Mystery Tour. Paul might have enjoyed a gala performance from Sadler's Wells or the Strauss concert with the Vienna Philharmonic. Ringo and Maureen may have cuddled up to watch Powell Joey with Frank Sinatra and John and Yoko may have snuggled up to Michael Craig in Doctor in Love. These were different times and it should be noted that apart from BBC Two, broadcasts for most of British television were still being shown in black and white. The other notable event of January 2nd, 1969, although the Beatles would have been unaware of this, was the purchase of the British tabloid, The News of the World, by Australian businessman Rupert Murdoch, and the beginning of his ascent into the media tycoon that he is today. So, without further ado, let's delve into these recordings. They're compiled from two sources, both from professional standard Nagra reel-to-reel tape recorders, one assigned to camera A and one to camera B. The quality is very high, but not anywhere near a professional studio recording. I've deliberately omitted virtually all musical performances, though I will describe what's happening. What I want to focus on is the conversations and the atmosphere of each session. Anyone who has heard the music will know that the quality of many performances is not of the high standard we've come to expect from the Beatles. But these are rehearsals, not performances. One final note. The Beatles' words are very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. It's symbolic, oh, symbolic. And short on the critic. Throughout these recordings, you'll hear the sound engineers giving audio slates to sync with the cameras. That's Michael Lindsay Hogg. He's just 28 and he's already got an impressive CV. Director for the groundbreaking pop show Ready Steady Go, directing the paperback writer and rain clips for the Beatles, both on video and then on film. He directed the promotional clips for Jumping Jack Flash and Child of the Moon for the Rolling Stones, and both he and most of the crew had just shot the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus in December. Michael is giving off stage direction now to the Beatles road managers, Mal Evans and 19-year-old Kevin Harrington. 
Kevin later commented about what he was asked to do that day. Yeah, the first day, uh, I wanted an opening shot. So it was decided that Mal and I would push this piano, okay? I, was, I think had in one hand a, what was it, oh, a cymbal stand, and the other one Mal had, no, Mal had the cymbal stand, I had something else. And so we're both pushing this piano one-handed, and it was ridiculous, you know. Uh, <laughs> as I sort of said, you know, I was told to push a piano, so I pushed the piano. Mm-hmm. There was no need to push the piano, except that they wanted to film it. Three, take one. Another audio slate indicates that some filming without sound is about to take place. Four, take one. Silent turnover. When the tape is turned back on, John and George have arrived. They're sitting quite close to each other now because there isn't a PA yet. And they're just tuning their guitars for the minute. The first guitar you hear, that's John Lennon on his Epiphone Casino and he's working through some riffs based around the chord changes to a new song he's brought in today called Don't Let Me Down. Don't Let Me Down is probably John's most memorable contribution to the project. As John presents the song, it's still unfinished and during these sessions he will add and subtract sections to the song structure. One part, a descending chord sequence, is eventually dropped, but at the moment it serves as an ending to the song. What eventually emerges is known as a palindromic song structure. That is to say that the sections of the song are the same backwards as forwards. Riff, chorus, verse, chorus, middle, chorus, verse, chorus, riff. I'm sure this is purely intuitive, but it shows the Beatles' songcraft in action. The song is basically in 4-4 time. That's four beats to every bar, except for the pickup, which is typically Lennonish in 5-4. Nobody ever loved me like she. The chord structure is basically an oscillation between E major and F sharp minor, most likely inspired by Fleetwood Mac's Albatross. As the song develops, the bass part implies a B chord between the F sharp minor and the E. The middle section is another two chord oscillation, this time between E major and B7. While the chords are simple, the Beatles will eventually build some catchy melodic phrases into the song to make it one of the stronger pieces performed over the period. The lyrics of the song are direct and compelling. It's a plea to his love, Yoko, not to disappoint him after he'd invested so much into the relationship at great personal cost. In the verses, it asserts that he's feeling a greater love than ever before. John did have tremendous attachment issues brought about by the loss of his mother Julia and his best friend Stuart Sutcliffe and their manager Brian Epstein. Whilst the sentiment of the song is on the surface romantic, there is a very unhealthy undercurrent to the lyrics which betray some deep-rooted anxieties in its author. One notable aspect about the first run-through is how John Milley plays the song and lets his bandmates find their parts. He doesn't direct the players, The whole thing feels like a collaboration. Compare this to Paul's approach when he arrives. You'll find throughout these tapes, there's intermittent periods where the tape goes off just as you're getting into the middle of a performance or something like that. And that's just all part and parcel of the experience. 
After a bit of tuning himself up to John, George starts to routine a song that he's brought in, which he's going to call All Things Must Pass. And John riffs along, at least while the song's in here, you can do that. It should be noted that John and George don't actually realise they're being recorded. John begins running through his new song, Don't Let Me Down, with George providing quite competent accompaniment. George very quickly latches onto a harmony John says, I can't make it, referring to the high-pitched vocal. Ringo arrives. We presume he's been listening for a little while because he sits behind the kit and immediately locks in with the rest of them. It should be quite a moving and emotional start to these sessions. The three Beatles have got together and created a piece of music literally from thin air. And it works. John, George and Ringo exchange greetings. Hi Ringo, how are you? Hi Ringo, happy new year. Happy new year. Are going to get George's Ringo has now left his kit to join everyone for a morning cup of tea. And John mentions to Yoko that she should give George a copy of his diary which he'd created for Aspen magazine as a humorous 1969 diary with all the events written in advance. Here is a review of John Lennon's diary for 1969 from unbound.com. In November 1968, John Lennon created a diary for the future for Aspen, the self-styled multimedia magazine in a box. A facsimile of a pocket diary Lennon's contribution was designed to be a projection of the following year. Almost every entry was filled with the same banal report. Got up, went to work, came home, watched telly, went to bed. The only relief to this tedious litany comes with the holiday entry for July 14th. Went to Majorca. Followed by a series of blank days and then on 26th of July, the cheeky came back. Lennon's diary is a good joke, and like the best jokes, it makes a larger cultural point that the diaries of most individuals, including and perhaps in particular those of celebrities, are not worth the paper they're printed on. Lennon's message is straightforward. He has nothing to say about his life, either because his life is as dull as his diary suggests or because he simply doesn't want us to know anything. We suspect the latter. In either case, his response to the idea of a diary as a source of fulsome biographical revelation is contemptuous. Even pop stars have the right to be private or boring, like a grinning gargoyle above a church door. Lennon pokes his tongue at us for daring to enter. And yet, on some level, Lennon must believe this particular diary worthy of attention. 
It is, after all, nestled up alongside some pretty serious cultural contributions. An essay from Edward Lucy Smith on contemporary poetry, some drawings by David Hockney, and a phonographic recording of lyrics by Yoko Ono and Lennon himself, with music by John Tavener. Lennon's diary contribution is a joke on the diary genre, but the joke depends on us taking its cultural context seriously. And then I wrote... That's the most finished. That's a good one. I like simple jokes. As you can tell by the good-natured laughter between the two of them, that's not a barbed comment from George. That's him basically saying it's a nice, easy song to learn. Hare Krishna. Hi. Yeah. George and John are just greeting a Hare Krishna devotee called Sayama Sundara. He's wandered onto the set. Let's find out a little bit more about him. The Hare Krishna devotee Sayama Sundara can be seen in the promotional clip for the Beatles single The Ballad of John and Yoko. He sits cross-legged, rocking back and forth in a silent incantation, viewed in his robes in the background between John and Paul as they talk animatedly about something or other. The footage comes from this session at Twickenham. So who is this man, seemingly out of place, and why is he here? The stories of his meeting the Beatles have, like those of many other associates, become distorted and embellished over the past 50 years. So this is my best attempt at getting to the substance of the story. Along with five other devotees, three married couples in fact, Sayama Sundra, who had helped establish the Krishna Consciousness Temple in Los Angeles, was given the task of establishing a similar international society for Krishna Consciousness in London. They arrived in Britain with barely a penny to their name. Among the organisations they attempted to make contact with was the Beatles' own Apple Corps. They began a charm offensive, sending, among other things, baked apple pies emblazoned with the words Hare Krishna. A tape of devotional singing was even submitted to the Apple A&R department, only to be lost amongst all the other unlistened to material that overwhelmed the Apple Music team. At some point close to Christmas, some say Christmas Eve, some the occasion of the Apple Christmas party, Sayama Sundra managed to gain access to the Apple building in Savile Row and sat in the reception area, hoping to see a beetle lost and invisible in the chaos of the laissez-faire business venture. After a few hours, George descended the stairs, spied the devotee and trudging across the thick apple green carpets, he extended his hand and reportedly said, Where have you been? I've been trying to meet Hare Krishna people for the last couple of years. A slight exaggeration perhaps, but in his trips to LA and New York, George had become aware of the Hare Krishna movement and interested in all things spiritual as he was, he gravitated to the shaven-headed and berobed figure in his offices. Again, what happened next is difficult to ascertain. Some say George invited Simon Sundra to lunch with the Beatles the next day. But as one version of events would make that Christmas day, this seems unlikely. As we will see, Paul doesn't seem to recognise him at Twickenham. It may just be that George invited Simon Sundra to visit the Beatles at the studios, and they had lunch there. One account does have them retiring to an office on site and John being the one with the most questions, as ever on a quest to find his guru. 
One version of events conjures some interesting images. Unable to get past the police who were stationed outside the studios, holding back a crowd of fans still loyal to the band even in 1969, Sayama Sundra apparently waited for the sea of bodies to part for John and Yoko's white Rolls Royce, and crouching down alongside the vehicle, Duck walked his way into the complex. Once there, he was able to mingle freely with the film extras, all dressed as he appeared to be in costume. One thing is for certain, when George greets him, it's as if he's expected him to be there. John is more cautious, but no less welcoming. It's the beginning of a close personal friendship for George, and one that would last until the end of his life. The three Hare Krishna couples would eventually live both on the grounds of John's Tittenhurst Park mansion, and help George with the renovation of his own Friar Park. Now back to the recordings. John and George already have reservations about the rehearsal space they've been given. John says how he's been writing more on his Epiphone electric guitar. He starts to a pony. Dennis. Ringo says hi to Dennis O'Dell, head of Apple Film, who'd provided the soundstage by rescheduling filming for the Magic Christian movie. Dennis asks, how long did it take you to get here? Ringo says about 40 minutes, maybe less. This should be roughly the same for all the Beatles that live in Isha. Dennis comments, this will be good when they start filming. George inquires, dig the pony? John corrects him. Dig a Pony is the second song brought to these sessions by John. Although he would later describe the song as garbage, there is much in the finished performance to enjoy, at least musically. The song's structure is a pattern of verse-chorus repeated three times, the only deviation being a solo section over the verse-chord sequence. John bases the verse on a country-tinged A chord with hammered on D over A every third beat. What then follows are some familiar Lennon chord choices. The trusty F-sharp minor, moving to B minor and G7th, resolving on an open E chord. The chorus is a repetition of G to D to A. As with Don't Let Me Down, it is the rest of the band's contributions, notably George's embellishment, that helped drive the song. George's guitar playing had evolved during 1968, successfully making the transition from Chet Atkins-inspired country picker to Clapton-esque blues whaler. The evolution hadn't arrived easily, and Paul had been all too keen to use up the lead guitar role at times during 1966 and 1967. Guitar playing had changed exponentially, and George had managed to keep up with it by now. Lyrically, this is another piece of Dylan-esque wordplay, very much of its time. The wordism used was similar to pointillism in painting, creating an impression from unrelated components. Counterculture in the 60s believed that old values and taboos were dead and art could be anything you wanted it to be. 
Words could mean anything the listener interpreted. This approach was a hangover from previous years and may even be an old 1967 or early 1968 song idea resurrected for this project. The use of imagery is at odds with John's newer Three Chords and the Truth approach, and this is typified by the bolted-on All I Want Is You chorus, a theme he'd explore further in later sessions with his I Want You, She's So Heavy composition. However, in spite of himself, some lyrics seem to have a deeper meaning. You can penetrate any place you go could have a sexual connotation brought on by the heightened sexuality of his relationship with Yoko. Roller Stoney, you can imitate everyone you know, could be a dig at Mick Jagger. Pick a Moondog may be a reference to an early Beatles name choice, Johnny and the Moondogs. The song is in 6-8. Over time, the band would create an intro in 3-4. I'll come back to this development later on. George joins in for a solo of sorts. John says something about... Just do the, only the one, George. I think he means just the once round the chords for the solo. You've had Eric Burden's new one. It's pretty good. It's an old one, isn't it? Yeah, Ring of Fire. That's right, yeah, Johnny Cash. sounds great, yeah. You know, it sounds like he's got back to House of the Rising Sun. Eric Burden and the Animals have just released a dramatic rearrangement of the Johnny Cash song Ring of Fire, all chanting and histrionic vocals not dissimilar to what Joe Cocker had achieved with his rewrite of With a Little Help From My Friends. It will go on to a peak of number 35 in the British charts. Ringo is referring to the original Animals lineup reuniting for a benefit concert in Newcastle in December '68. The Stone Show. No, the Animal Show. And they all formed up again to do a show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to know for certain from this distance of time, but it seems that John is insinuating the Rolling Stones performance wasn't terribly good. John improvises a new intro for Don't Let Me Down. Every song's on the same chord. John comments, every song has the same chords. George concurs, but adds, mine do too. George asks John to show him the descending run. George comments that it would be better to learn the songs first and film later. And at this point, we'll leave the three Beatles and the crew until next time. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.